There are rules. We are nothing if we do not abide by the Assassin's Creed. Three simple tenets. First and foremost, stay your blade. From the flesh of an innocent. The second tenet is that which gives us strength. Hide in plain sight. Let the people mask you such that you become one with the crowd. The third and final tenet. Never compromise the Brotherhood. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Assassin's Creed. Assassins and Templars have been at war for centuries. I aim to change that. Part of Now Playing's video game movie review series. I died here, aren't I? Hosted by Justin. Man might prove to have some noble blood in him yet. Stuart. I can't do this. Yes, you can. And Arnie. I'm an aggressive person. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. What now, Pioneer? We fight. Today we're discussing Assassin's Creed, starring Michael Fassbender, Marion Cotillard, Jeremy Irons, Brendan Gleeson, Charlotte Rampling, Michael K. Williams, directed by Justin Kurzel. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and this is not the way I like to do things. And Stuart. And I think I'm here by my own free will. I'm Justin. Justin, don't you know there is no free will? <laughs> yeah, you have to be. You're you're in the video game retrospective, and we're at one of the biggest video games. I've never played Assassin's Creed, but I feel like everyone knows it exists. It has a huge pop culture awareness score. It seems logical that they would make a big movie out of it. Yeah, we've sort of discussed this a little bit before. This game franchise started off as a Prince of Persia game. Prince of Persia had had some successes on new-gen consoles, and they decided to make a spin-off game where the Prince of Persia would not be the playable character. You would play an assassin working for the Prince of Persia, and it was just going to be called Prince of Persia Assassin, and they decided that might not be the best way to go with the Prince of Persia series. You've always played the prince. The prince has always been a good guy. Would the prince employ assassins? And so the person who was creating this game was told, go off and make it its own franchise. Hmm. This was around the time the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 were coming out. And so they were really able to open this up and create a big open world game. Now, when this movie came out, though, I remember seeing trailers and I'm like, this looks very confusing because you're in the present and you're also in the past, and the trailers really sold this interpolation of the character in different time periods, and I'm like, well, I've played that game. That's nothing like the game. It turns out I've never played this game. I was getting confused with a similar game called Thief, which took place in about the same time period and about the same clothes and was still a stealth game. Assassin's Creed always had this storytelling engine of you are in modern day being put into a machine and forced to relive the memories of your ancestors. Really? Yes. That wasn't something invented for this movie. Nope, that is the conceit of every single one of these games. 
Wow. They don't sell it as sci-fi. I feel like they've had TV ads for these video games and it always looks like it's about the history. That you go into this robot suit and fly around, I would have bet any amount of money that this was Hollywood. The suit is, it actually felt like they took from the Matrix, you actually just sat in a chair and had something jack into your head, just like the Matrix in the games. Here, they created that whole robotic arm that would whip you around and whatever, but you spent so much more time in the past. The modern day was mostly cutscenes, or a little bit of mystery around what is going on. Mm. All of the action, the assassination, the fun took place in the past, and each of these games takes place in a different time period. So there would be one in the Renaissance, there would be one with pirates, things like that, so it could go through while still having this overarching storyline that's more being puzzled together in present day. Yeah, that, my passing knowledge of the game feels more like that. Like, what I know about these games is that it was in different time periods, you know? Like, just even from the action figures that I saw, like you said, there were Civil War era ones, there was Renaissance era ones and stuff like that. I was expecting to see some of that in this movie, I thought. I didn't know that that was interconnected, though. Yeah, that was my assumption, was it was a war, you know, like, if you like war games, this is the coolest one out in 2007 and for the last decade. That and Call of Duty are what people are playing. In the game, are you always the same person jacking into different time periods then? In a lot of the early games, you are the same person in modern day. And you're viewing the story of different of his ancestors, all of whom are assassins. And since I hadn't played this game, I did spend a good number of hours playing Assassin's Creed for this review. And... Here's how I can say it, and it's probably a very strange parallel, but it's nonetheless the one that came to mind for me, is for anyone who's played Grand Theft Auto, imagine Grand Theft Auto in ancient times or medieval times, what have you, in that you are walking around a city and the city has its police enforcers or law in some kind, and you're doing illegal things, mostly assassinations, but sometimes a theft, some other thing, and you have to keep your profile low. And the more the authorities get onto you, the way in Grand Theft Auto, you may have to hop into a chop shop and get your car painted, or you may have to lay low here. You could sit on a bench or become part of a group of acolytes so people think you're some religious person instead of an assassin and keep your profile low as you go out on these missions, most of which are find this person and kill this person. But like the later Grand Theft Auto games, this is open world. You can pretty much explore the entire region. And what this series is known for, what its big selling point has always been in all the commercials I've seen for the games. Hoodies. <laughs> Hoodies, but you get up on this really, really high point, and the reason being, you're exploring a map, and when you get up to this high point, you get the view of the entire city, so you now know where everything is on the map, and then you do this death-defying, huge, what they call the leap of faith, where you are on this, you know, 200-foot tower, you leap off, you do this great dive, and you land in a bale of hay, and you're fine. <laughs> yeah. They even did that in the Prince of Persia movie. I remember Gyllenhaal had a scene where he did it. So it, it's been a thing for a, a moment, and it's cool. That and the eagles. <laughs> the fact that you follow eagles as they swoop through cities and give you an aerial view and things. Those are like the two trademarks, I think, of the series. Well, the other trademark that I think of, and maybe this is just me having a false memory from advertising and stuff, but I thought parkour 
was one of the big selling points of this game. Oh yes, that is a huge amount of this game, is running on rooftops, and kind of like the Prince of Persia games. You're climbing up stuff, you're hanging from ledges, and running across a lot of rooftops to get away from authorities and slip in to the Assassin's Guild through a skylight and things like that. Oh, yes, a whole lot of parkour is just baked into the franchise. Is it fun? I mostly played the first game, and I can say it got repetitive to me after mm-hmm. I played it for a while. I hear that that was a common complaint and that it was addressed in a lot of the later games, but it's one that I can understand why people would really get into, but not one that I'd want to spend hundreds of hours playing. It just was, to me, it was good. It wasn't great, and there's so many good games out there. Truthfully, there's a lot of games in my entire life, dating back to the Atari 2600, where you buy the game, you play it for a little bit, and it ends up on a pile of other games you only played for a little bit, and that's where Assassin's Creed ends up for me. I bought it, I played it a little bit, and now it's going to probably sit on my hard drive unplayed for the rest of my life. Mm, yeah, it doesn't look like one I would be totally captivated with. I think a lot of gamers probably feel that way. I mean, I think what we're saying is, is that this game is huge for whatever reason, which kind of makes it like aimed at the masses rather than gamers. I was talking to my son Tyler about it, and he was like, he kind of poo-pooed it. Like, eh, it's okay. I mean, everybody's aware of it. Like, so maybe it's like the Rice Krispies of the video game world. It's like, everybody (laughs) knows it, but like, who's really buying it and enjoying it? Well, a lot of people are buying it. This is one of the top-selling video game franchises of all time across more than a dozen main titles and spin-off titles and portable titles. Yeah, it's bigger than games. Like, as you've said, I've seen action figures for this in toy aisles and things. Like, it really does feel there's probably manga and books and comic books. And there's another movie. Believe it or not, we're only covering the 2016 movie. But in 2009, a couple Canadians painted a room green and did like a 30-minute webisode thing called Assassin's Creed Lineage. You guys know about this? I read about it, but I did not watch it. Did you? Yeah, it's on YouTube. They released it for YouTube. I think you can commercially buy it on DVD, but it was essentially meant to hype the second game. When it came out, they released a backstory that just watching it alone makes no sense. Maybe if I played the game and then saw it, I would. it just looks like you're an Italian stabbing people everywhere you go. Like, are you a Medici? Die! Stab, 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 stab. But... The point was really to see if they could bring the video game tropes. So much of what I see in this later movie, I'm imagining are big things in the game. You've already pointed out the eagle and parkour, climbing up walls, lots of like the whole blade that comes out of the wrist thing. They're loving that. It was fairly gory. It was kind of cheesy, green screen room looking, but it at least sort of set the idea that Ubisoft was going to eventually make a real movie out of this franchise. They were thinking about this project even back in 2009. They were thinking about it in 2007 when they made this very first game. Because keep in mind, Prince of Persia was not all that far off as far as Jake Gyllenhaal's movie when this first game came out. Eidos had been in the 
process of changing games into Hollywood when they made the very first game, the thought of, let's make a game that can become a film franchise also, was there. And you are right. I mean, when I was doing my research on this, there's a book series, there's a comic book series, there's an audio drama. In addition to the live action thing you saw, there's some animated shorts that they've put out to tie into the games. Mm. You can get as deep into the Assassin's Creed world and mythology and fandom as you want to go. I've seen the action figures of all places. I keep finding them at Walgreens. I don't know why there, but I could say as deep as I wanted to get into the fandom was this movie, which when it was announced, I'm like, okay, we're finally getting a great video game movie adaptation because this is starring Michael Fassbender. And man, when this was announced in like 2014, Fassbender was a big name. He not only had commercial success with the X-Men films and been in Prometheus, but there was also the fact that he was getting some artistic notoriety for films like Shame and whatnot. I'm like, wow, you've got a real actor, somebody who's hot and wanted to be in this movie. Obviously, that's a sign of quality. Agreed. I saw this movie when it came out. It is a Fox movie. I was still working at Fox for the next couple months. I knew my exit was near, but I was still going to the free screenings on the lot. This was their big Christmas 2016 movie. And so I went into it not because, you know, I, you know, video games can't wait to see another one fail at the screen. I really thought, oh, they've got artists, they've got quality people to bring this to life. Not only do they have Fassbender, but Marion Cotillard had won the Oscar and had been in Inception and Jeremy Irons, Charlotte Rampling. This director had been already, I think the reason why he probably got the gig was he and Fassbender had been working so closely together to bring a Macbeth to the screen. I don't know if you guys have seen that one. It's not the one with the Denzel and it's not the one Roman Polanski made after Sharon Tate died. It was 2015, I think. I've seen a lot of Macbeths. I have not seen this one. Is it good? You know what? It's kind of a slog. (laughs) Not unlike the film we're here to talk about, pretty joyless. Hard to connect to the characters. Even Fassbender, who I think of as being a perfect Macbeth, was not perfect in it. I struggled to hold my attention watching it. It was not great, but it at least had the air of importance. It was self-important, if not an important movie. And so the fact that people like that want to tackle a video game movie means that we've upped a few levels, that this is going to be a real movie. And again, that was my impression. Watching this, I was like, they have done things in this movie that don't feel like I went in thinking Prince of Persia and I came out thinking Clockwork Orange. I'm like, what What I'm watching was not the aspirations of making a video game look fun. It was an attempt to make art. And I was impressed with that, but also unsure about the finished product. You are right. The whole reason this director got the job is because when they were approaching Fassbender to work on this, they were working together on Macbeth and Fassbender... He probably was just at the right point in his career to have enough juice that he became a producer of this and got to bring his director from Macbeth along with him and had a lot of creative control. He was involved not just a producer in name and paycheck, but in post-production, in editing. He was a creative force behind this film. Yeah, on paper, this movie has all the ingredients to be the best video game movie that we've ever seen. I mean, like Stuart said, we've got talented actors going into this. We have 
proven screenwriters and directors and a budget with an A-plus title for a video game? What could go wrong? Well, you say proven director. I get that this guy has worked with Fassbender on Macbeth, but I feel it's notable that he hasn't done anything really buzzworthy or notable before or after, has he? Yeah, well, he came from Australia. He made sort of these, he made a true crime movie about a serial killer, the Snowden murders down there. He would have been a local phenomenon, but on the international stage, as far as working as a Hollywood director, this would have been his time to prove himself. And I guess I'm just judging him on it's not Uvable, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, which is, a, again, a delightful surprise after so many just abjectly terrible films that just announced with their cast and poster to have one with pretensions the one that like yes on paper seems like it could win best picture cool let's see how it goes arnie give him the plot and we'll see if we're gonna give him the statue in modern day michael fassbender is cal lynch a man on death row for killing a pimp (laughs) statue yet <laughs> I love that they have to keep calling it a pimp. I didn't murder anyone, I killed a pimp. Okay. Strange qualifier. After receiving his lethal injection, Cal wakes up. He's been saved from death by an organization called the Templars, led by Alan Ricken, played by Jeremy Irons. Ricken and his daughter Sophia, played by Marion Cotillard, are searching for an artifact called the Apple of Eden, which will enable the Templars to remove the free will from their enemies. This has been a mission of the Templars for centuries, but standing against the Templars has been the Assassin's Brotherhood. The apple was last seen in the late 15th century when it was taken by an assassin named Aguilar, also played by Fassbender. What? (laughs) I know! That was Fassbender too? (laughs) I know, they put contact lenses in him and I had the hood, right? You barely see a face, there's just a hood. (laughs) Right, and a beard. You thought it was Arrow? Yeah, I thought it was a different dude. (laughs) Cal is a direct descendant of Aguilar, so the Templars hope to discover where the apple was kept through Cal's genetic memories. Using a device called the Animus, Cal relives events in Aguilar's life, showing Aguilar and his fellow assassins fighting against the Templars, the Templars wanting to use the apple for control, the assassins wanting to keep the apple hidden away from abuse. The more Cal uses the Animus, the more the assassin's skills are transferred to Cal. In the Animus, it's learned that Aguilar gave the apple to Christopher Columbus, who promised to take it to his grave. Alan and the Templars raid the grave of Columbus and retrieve the apple, which isn't really an apple because it would have rotted in centuries. It's actually (laughs) like a metal ball that kind of looks like a more detailed sphere from Phantasm. (laughs) And now the Templars are prepared to control humanity. But Cal and several other prisoners of the Templars use their learned assassin skills to break out of their prison. Cal infiltrates the Templar ceremony, kills Alan, and takes the apple. Sophia swears to avenge her father as the new group of assassins promise to protect the apple, and credits roll. And roll. And roll. And roll. (laughs) (laughs) It is 15 minutes of end credits. I was waiting for that end stinger that gives me the rest of the movie. Did not come. Was not there. No, seriously, an eighth of this movie's runtime is in credits. I saw that this movie was almost two hours, an hour, 55 minutes. No, it's an hour, 40 minutes, and then has longer credits 
than Jonah Hex, which also had Fassbender in it, I might add. Mm. But yes, Jonah Hex, I thought, held the record at bringing a 70-minute movie to 80 minutes. But for some reason, they want to scroll these credits so slow. 15 <laughs> minutes of credits. A lot of people worked on this, apparently. Let's talk about the opening credits, because we get one of those Star Wars kind of scrolls that are supposed to set the tone. Helpful or hurtful? It's a lot shorter than a Star Wars crawl, I'll say that, because they make each sentence its own paragraph. For centuries, the Order of the Knights Templar have searched for the mythical Apple of Eden. They believe it contains not only the seeds of man's first obedience, get it, apple, seeds, mm. but the key to free will itself. If they find the relic and decode its secrets, they will have the power to control all freedom of thought. Only the Brotherhood, called the Assassins, stand in their way. I mean, yeah. I mean, it sets up the promise of ancient knowledge and the potential of two different ideologies coming head to head, you know, science versus religion or whatever. And I just, I don't know that it delivers on that promise from the opening scroll. I mean, it's kind of an interesting idea. I mean, just because I've heard the story of Adam and Eve interpreted as the taking of knowledge. It was the tree of knowledge. The snake was tempting them. The idea that, like, if we're going back to the biblical construct of where we attained our knowledge and maybe our disobedience from God, I'm trying to visualize how an apple is going to do all of this, but I thought it was a cool conceit. In the video games, I'll just say they've gotten into quite a bit of detail that there was a different species that was the dominant species on Earth in like 75,000 BC. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the games, it's the Isu, and the Isu made humans as their slaves and used the Apple of Eden to control the human slaves, but it didn't work on everyone, and so Adam and Eve were actually the two humans who led the revolt to overthrow the Isu. Wow. And so that's where Adam and Eve and the Apple of Eden all tie in. And it's a really interesting cutscene to see naked man, naked woman, you know, in that kind of Austin Powers way where you never really see nudity, but it's just kind mm. of blocked at all times as they're running away from their slavers and starting a revolt. So I imagine if there were sequels to this movie, we'd get into more of the origins of the Apple and probably the Isu. And maybe Kirk Cameron would be starring in them. That's true. Okay, that's wild. That they went so biblical. I wouldn't have guessed that. But I, it tells you the good guys and the bad guys, right? It's real cut and dry. Like, there's assassins and there's Knights of Templar, who I also remember being the villainous thing in the Get Out sort of universe. So it's easy for me to keep track of the idea that the knights are bad, and for some reason, assassins in this world are good. Yeah, but does it? That's kind of where I start having problems with this movie is this movie doesn't give you any reason to side with either one of these ideologies. How true. Yes, we get another pro. There's like three prologues. We got this opening scroll and then we get the 1492 prologue that's going to establish Fassbender in the past. And you're telling me, Justin, now I hurt for you. You never realized that this was the same character as the convict in the future? You know, I thought they should have had it be Michael Fassbender as both roles and was disappointed that it wasn't. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess they did just good enough makeup or maybe Michael Fassbender just has one of those faces that just kind of looks generic enough if you change something here and there that I thought it was somebody else. 
Like, I thought it was one of those things where, like, maybe they gave his stunt double an acting role because there's not going to be that much talking. (laughs) His brother, his Clint Howard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Chucky Fassbender finally gets to work. (laughs) Put on the hood. I'll agree with you, though, Justin, that without Fassbender's piercing green eyes and without really getting his whole face in display because... The notable thing about the classic assassin from this games is their white robe with the hood up. You know, they look almost like a boxer getting ready into the ring with the hood and everything. It's really easy to not grasp that. I kept kind of squinting and being like, I know intellectually it's Fastbender, but I don't see Fastbender. <laughs> Let's just call it out. This movie is underlit. Like, the cinematography in this, and I looked up the rating, it's PG-13. I think it's partially by design, we're going to have so many violent action scenes taking place in very dark shadows as a way of implying carnage they cannot show to get this rating. Oh, Stuart, I'm watching this in 3D because it was released in 3D, it was a post-conversion job, some of it's okay, some of it's not, but I probably spent an hour while watching this movie pausing it because I'm like, my projector calibration is off. I know I'm wearing 3D glasses and that casts a brown haze, but why is everything so brown? And if it's not brown, it's blue. I'm like going into my projector settings. I'm upping the brightness because I can't see anything. I'm adjusting the hue, the tint. I'm putting the glasses on, taking the glasses off, trying to figure out why I'm not seeing this well And it turns out I'm seeing exactly what the filmmakers wanted me to see. But this is an ugly movie where every scene is either brown or blue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's drab for sure. This cinematographer, Adam Arkapow, all his stuff. The Macbeth that they made looks like this. True Detective, that first season with Haroldson and McConaughey. Very drab looking. It works sometimes. It creates the idea of a noir But here, because we're being told, like, this is a big, flashy action movie that you want to inject yourself into, let's just talk about this opening here. Because, all right, Fassbender is joining his brotherhood on the floor, and some big monk is, like, asking them to, like, nothing quite like a cult asking you to support free will as they make you do weird things. I think they make him (laughs) chop off his finger? (laughs) I couldn't tell. Yes, in the game, they have you do it on your not-dominant hand because they don't want to limit your sword abilities. So He fires arrows! You do it on your left hand. But here, they have him cut off the middle finger of his right hand, and that's so that you can use that little wrist blade thing better. Oh, okay. So there is a utility to that. I wish that had been clear. I wish a lot had been clear, but it's just a funny thing to start out on because you think people in hoods chanting about like, you know, we're going to get people would be the bad guy, but these are the good guys. They're going to stop the Spanish Inquisition and the Knights Templar. And that was something disappointing to me when I was playing the game is if you tell me I'm playing an assassin, I want to be a badass evil assassin, you know? I want to go out there kind of like the old Hitman games that, remember, we reviewed Hitman way back when, and at least those you started off as an evil Hitman, even if you did end up turning against your handler. But here, when I was playing Assassin's Creed, I thought, okay, I get to be this badass assassin. Wait, now you're telling me the assassins are just this 
cabal. It's not even like a trade. It's a cult, as you said, Stuart. I mean, I know of the Knight Templars mostly because I read the Da Vinci Code. Right. <laughs> I don't know much else <laughs> about them. And Justin, I'll look to you for the Templar stuff because you read a lot more Dan Brown than I do. <laughs> Yeah, that's mostly all contained within the Da Vinci Code, but yeah. When you think assassin, and I'm wondering if in the game, there's more sneaking around and like silently killing people, is almost ninja-like. But in this movie, there's none of that. It's basically just brute force. Acrobatics. It's some of both. There's no way to get through that game and not get into sword fights with lots of guards, but it is a lot more about stealth and hiding than it is about being obvious and just walking up to somebody and cutting their heads off with a sword. The more, and in later games, it got better. Like you could do takedowns. Here's a game that I played a lot more than Assassin's Creed, but Arkham Asylum, if you ever played that Batman game or Spider-Man, that recent one for the PlayStation, you could be on a ledge and just do a takedown and somebody's instantly gone and nobody heard. You could do that in the later Assassin's Creed games. You could pull people into bushes and slit their throats and be completely imperceptible. But sometimes you still have to be ballsy and then just run like hell. Well, hold that thought about how they're going to fight because we cut away from that. There's another prologue. In 1986, (laughs) we got a 70-year-old boy in a hoodie uh, trying to make the connection between... Green Arrow, Aguilar, in the beginning, and who he's going to become in the 80s, doing bike tricks on rooftops before going home to his mom in Mexico. And it wasn't clear to me with the way this is set up. Flashbacks will fill in the picture. He is walking in on his dad, dressed as the green assassin, having just slit his mom's throat. The bicycle stunt, A ouch, that he misses, and I'm surprised that bike was still rideable, but B, I thought they were setting this up, right? Like, as a kid, he got really good at riding motorcycles and bicycles from rooftop to rooftop. This is never going to come back. In fact, Cal, the modern character that we're seeing here in his youth, doesn't ever do much. There's a lot of things on roofs later, but it is all what happened in the past. I think we're to see it more as this kid is continuing the lineage that uh, is in his blood. To this movie's thinking, what your ancestors do is with you in your DNA. The skills they learn, the traits they have, you are them. So, yeah, this scene is a little bit confusing in that they don't let us really know why his dad killed his mother. And later on in the movie, we do get a little bit of an answer, but I don't feel like it answers why. Like, are we to assume that she didn't want to go to this place and be used the way that Cal eventually will be used? Is that what the movie's trying to tell us? That's what I take it as, is the whole guild has sworn to protect the apple, and if they get into her memories, they can find the apple, and so she would rather die than give up the apple to the Templars. Right. Yeah, there's a SWAT team that is blowing in here, being led by Jeremy Irons. Uh, I don't think he's de-aged. I just think they gave him sunglasses. We will find out his importance in all of this later. All we are to really understand is that Cal is scared of both his dad and these gunmen and escapes on the roof and follows that magical eagle off to a future where, all right, let's just fill in all the gaps of what happens, you know, 30 years in between. He got into a street gang. From what I could tell when we get to the newspaper clipping montage of his life, 
He got into a street gang, uh, did a life of crime, and because he killed a pimp, he was given a death sentence. Like, he is on death row for murdering a pimp. Seems extreme. It is Texas. They make a big deal of it being Texas, so I can go with that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, yeah. To me, that feels really extreme. And again, I think it's for the audience that we find out he didn't kill innocent people. Even though he will be portrayed as someone that is hardened and defined by violence, I don't know. You know, I can imagine a circumstance where you might kill a pimp. You know, just going to go out on that ledge. They're never going to explain it, though. I mean, we're never going to find out if he did a noble killing. Was the pimp right. beating somebody? Was the pimp right doing something evil? Or was the pimp just, you know, pimping ain't easy, so... Mm, I think we can assume the pimp was hurting women, and that he came to their aid, makes him look a little bit more noble to us. We feel a little bad that he's doing this dead man walking thing in 2016 in this Texas penitentiary. And they also make somewhat of a big deal visually to show us that he's... He's an artist, you know, his wall is filled with his own charcoal drawings. And even when the priest comes in to give him his last rites, he's furiously drawing something. And that's, you know, that's Chekhov's gun. You're putting something on the wall, literally, in the first act (laughs) that ends up having nothing to do at all again in this movie. So is it just character building here? Or is it just shorthand for, hey, he's a good guy. He's an artist at heart. He killed a pimp. What are you going to do? There's an entirely cut subplot that involved a 14-year-old girl who was also locked up with Cal in the Templars thing later on, and she was there to try to make him connect to his humanity and things. And those two connected because the girl does a lot of drawings, and it was kind of fun. She had one of those old fortune teller folded paper things that we used to have way back on the playground in, like, second grade. But... There's like 15 minutes of cutscenes. Maybe they promised a runtime, cut 15 minutes of this girl and added the credits in. I'm not sure. It's funny (laughs) that it's almost identical lengths there. But they, uh, they may have been introducing this drawing to help establish a connection to her later on. And it's just an artifact that is left here. I can't say there's anything in this movie that made me realize any of this was missing. So you're telling me they tried to create a character that would make you care about Cal, that we would see maybe a more tender side of him. It's definitely missing from this movie. As Justin has already said, the biggest strike I have against this movie is, you know, conceptually some neat ideas that are going to be explored, but who cares about anyone on screen? Do I want knights or assassins or anybody to have a happy ending? I would say, even with Fassbender, an actor I like, it's a real struggle to be, you know, fist pumping with him as he learns that he's got a second shot at life. And since I am having trouble connecting with the characters on screen, I'm thinking maybe this isn't a movie about characters so much as it is about the lore and the things that we're going to see on screen. So maybe I'm asking dumb questions as I'm watching this movie, but I feel like if they're going to do certain things, they need to either be explained or not done. So my first big question is, is he actually executed and then brought back to life? Or is there something in place where it's a fake execution and then they have a deal with the prison to take him off? Ooh, good question. I always thought it was a fake execution. Yeah, I would assume the latter. When he's dying, he looks over at the window of all the people watching him die 
and among them is Dr. Sophia Riken in silhouette. And so I assume that she knows very well that this man is going to be in her care in 24 hours. He'll wake up in a Madrid concrete bunker laboratory called the Abstergo Foundation, and he'll be working with her to cure his violent impulses. So I think it's a deal. That's the way I read it, too. I mean, this is the first point in the movie where it's like, okay, are we going to go supernatural? Are we going to go somewhat sci-fi? Or is this going to be grounded in reality somewhat? But then later on, we find out that there's people that have been in this facility for 200 years. So there is some sort of supernatural aspect to this. Or have they only been there in their lifetime, but their ancestors were there? Yes. So if you trace back memories, they've been in this facility for 200 years. Oh, Jesus. Let me help you out with what I think this movie's saying. In this research facility, all of the patients are the descendants of the Brotherhood we saw at the beginning. And so, yes, when he meets Musa, you know, Omar from The Wire, Michael K. Williams, he introduces himself as someone that really is 200-year-old Baptiste, but that's because, genetically speaking, he's the descendant of that assassin. And I'm not saying your assessment is wrong, Stuart. I just feel like if this is a movie and they're trying to get us to follow along, then that's a really dumb metric. Like, I can pick any ancestor I want and claim to be alive for however long they've been around. I didn't get that. Here's where I'll get into this. But Animus, Anima, that's a Jungian concept. That Carl Jung is really sort of the new age psychologist that promotes the idea that we all come from the same cave, so to speak. That all of our memories and all of our experiences collectively can be traced back to a genetic origin. And there is research to support the idea that memories and things that happen to your ancestors are traceable to you now. Epigenetics is a thing. So what this machine, what this apparatus is designed to do is to get you back into the ancestor, well, that they care about from, you know, 400, 500 years ago. Yeah, it's the amount of terminology they're going to throw at you here. In the game, it's easier to go with, I think, because you're spending dozens of hours with the game and you're being introduced to these concepts cutscene by cutscene, whereas here, they're throwing a lot at you in the first 15 minutes of this film that if you aren't familiar with the game and don't realize the tropes they're following, God help you, I think, because by the time they're putting Fastbender in the giant claw arm, you know, it's feels like they've covered a lot of ground very quickly, and they're almost assuming you've played the games and know what's going on. I've never played the game, and I felt like I got... I mean, again, I think it's supposed to be jolting. He goes into the Animus three times, and the first time, yeah, we are supposed to be like, what is this? It is like the Matrix. Like, it's another reality. It's a hologram regression in which flashbacks are things that you interact with as you jump around an empty room on a wire, so to speak. That's, I mean, I think that concept comes through. And what they say specifically that kind of robs this of a lot of power is you can't change anything. What you're doing is reliving a memory. 
at least in the video game, I may be reliving a memory, but I still have to win the level, right? I mean, the unchangeable path is my success, and I have the fun of playing it. But what we're seeing here in these endless flashbacks is predetermined, and all anyone cares about is what happened to this apple, which the Templars already know this ancestor was the last person to have had the apple. And so all of the memories leading up to that are filler. Yeah, I guess I thought that that was maybe not fully true. Yeah, Yes, that is what Dr. Sophia Riken says, is that you can't change all of this. But I thought she might be just discouraging him from trying to break rules. And I wasn't convinced that he wasn't having some influence in present day jumping around and flipping. But I don't know. I thought this was cool. You guys didn't think that this was a cool concept? I think it is, but the problem I'm having is, is like you said, we get thrown into this, and that's fine. If that's what the movie wants me to do, is get thrown into this world, then I need to know some rules. I need to know what the stakes are. Like, can he die because he gets killed when he's having the memories in the Animus? Can he get scratched? Can he get stabbed? Or is this a zero-tolerance type of thing for him? And they know he's going to live because they know this is the guy who ended up with the apple. Right. No. They have a death date on him. He doesn't live forever. They know he'll die. Right, but these early scenes we're seeing, they know he'll live through because he was the one who got the apple. Right. What Sophia says she's doing and what they're actually doing are two different things. You're not really supposed to know, but I would say with Jeremy Irons being the CEO, you definitely know that this is a bad company, (laughs) but you're not supposed to know that they're really trying to get an apple. That's supposed to be something that like subtly sneaks up on you. What she keeps saying is, I'm going to cure you of your violent tendencies. We're going back to your history as an assassin to try and somehow expunge that from you. Is the the lip service that Cal is hearing about what he's doing here. Yeah. But it sounds like nobody's buying that, including the audience. We're all just like, yeah, yeah. The concept that violence is a disease. I mean, is it genetic? Is it transferable? Can I catch it because I'm not wearing a mask? (laughs) Right. And that is Jungian. Again, the animus and all of that, like that ties into some real research out there, even though it sounds a little fanciful and new age. There are people that would hold up documentation to support that. Well, there's got to be a better way to find the cure for violence than maybe a 5K walk or something. Maybe we can wear ribbons. (laughs) I'm with you. I think it's cool enough that I wish we had more time with it. it. Actually, all of this setup, more than The Matrix, it's really reminding me of Avatar which was also made by Fox about seven years before. But the whole idea of projecting into these other bodies and trying to get something out of this world that you're going out down in there. And yes, can you die if you're connected to your avatar self? All of those ideas. Cameron, my memory is he more or less got along to explaining it, but he had an extra hour to do so. Here, because this is an hour and 40 minute movie that's been reduced, cool concepts kind of don't get all the space that I would like. I'll just go ahead and say, I feel like this movie needs to be at least 30 minutes longer. I would disagree with that, but (laughs) I mean, I think you and I have different experiences watching this because to me, I'm left cold by a lot of this. I'm understanding it because I did play the games. I'm both understanding that this movie is not doing a great job of selling its gimmick, but I already knew coming in what the gimmick was going to be And so now what I really want is to find some excitement, enjoyment, and suspense in the past. I mean, the games primarily take place in the past, 
So that's where I'm looking for this movie to really shine. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't like the way that this is shot with the flares and the desaturated colors and all of that. But when we get this, essentially a chase scene where a, with a kidnapped child, I thought it was pretty good. You know, to, in my defense, the fact that we don't stay in the past once we go there and then just get cutbacks to people in the lab or whatever to give us some more expository reasons for what they're trying to accomplish while he's in this other world... That just adds to the confusion of, oh, the other guy is not Michael Fassbender. You know, I thought they wanted to have their star in as much live action as they could, but because we keep coming back, he keeps being pulled out of the Animus, and we have more scenes of him back in the real world, and then we go back into the Animus. I think it would have been better if we just were ready to get in there, and then we stay there until the mission is complete. By far, the more interesting part of the movie is when we're in the past. I mean, I think it's right to tease it. I, I agree with you. The, the The present day is sterile and not fun and everyone's somber and you, you do anything to get away from them. You do want the flashbacks to be joyous, but I, I think it's right to have both things going on in parallel. Like Avatar. Like, I feel like everyone wanted to be down on the planet. They didn't want to, you know, be in the headset room. I'm guessing in the game, it plays more like that too, where you... You're in and out of the Animus. It's not a constant. Once you go there, you're there until the end of the game. You go in, you do your mission, and sometimes those missions can take hours. And then when you complete your mission, you're pulled back out. Here's the fun part of the game is as you take damage, it's not that your character's getting hurt. It's that your connection with the character in the past in the Animus is breaking. And if you break that connection, then you lose the game there. So it's more about you're undergoing the physical tribulations in the present of things you're doing wrong in the past. I also think there's got to be something for history geeks here. Like the idea is we're really going back to moments in time of real life drama. Like this was the Spanish Inquisition. Basically, I don't know if the Knights Templar had anything to do with it, but there was a time when the Catholic Church was raining down on people for being fake Catholics and was basically a witch hunt. They were trying to expose them, burn them at the stakes. If you were a Jew or a Muslim trying to pretend like you were like your neighbors just to survive, people like, well, I call him Emperor Man Bun, but they have this like Black Knight dude that comes in here. He'll come and he'll kill you. And, and what we're seeing here is... I think for history buffs, this would be an exciting thing. The Spanish Inquisition is the enemy. They're torturing the innocent. And now we have assassins. Let's not <laughs> call them assassins because that gives them a bad name. We have a brotherhood of people like Robin Hood, they look like. They're trying to help the common man not be crushed by, you know, the governmental forces. And save a kid. You know, there's also this prince that's, you know, trying to hide that they now have in a cage. Yeah, now we finally actually have good guys and bad guys on screen that are clearly delineated for who you should be rooting for, and that's in the past here. And to your point, Stuart, you know, it being historically accurate or whatnot, they even name-dropped Takamata here. So it's mm -hmm. like they are pulling at least some things from history to grab onto us here. And who, Who's Takamata? He was the Grand Inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition. He was the guy. He was okay. the one you didn't want to mess with. And almost they should have probably used him as our main bad guy while in the past. Might have had more impact. Well, he is there later. When, when we get to a later scene, he's the bald friar looking dude. He looks like the Pope when they're at the stake. That was Takamata? Mm-hmm. 
Oh, wow. I thought they just name dropped him and this guy was, you know, some sort of underpope or something, but... No, yeah. When they said 1492, I was like, okay, how 1492 is this? Are they? Are we going to get Columbus? Well, turns out, hell yeah, we're getting Columbus. <laughs> I, I think that there would be... I'm not a history buff, but in my later life, I'm trying to fill in those gaps. I have an appreciation for people that do appreciate history. I think those people might be served by this scene. I feel like these scenes kind of remind me. In fact, this whole movie kind of reminds me of a fan edit of Ridley Scott movies. You know how Ridley Scott does his sci-fi movies and then he does his historical sword and sandals movies? This is like jumping between Prometheus and Gladiator and kind of a cool looking vibe. I'll give them this. The production design is very good. The fact that they went to Madrid, did a lot of shooting on location, and then a lot of real construction mixed with CG to get the period-accurate elements going. I wish I could see it better through the lens, but they have fleshed out that world well. Yeah, I, again, this first flashback is a grabber. When we got kids in cages riding on carriages that are going over cliffs and all of that, like, that is an effective action scene. Even though I can recognize I really don't give a shit about anyone. Like, I get that, like, I'm not really rooting for Aguilar or Cal, but I still think that there's enough here that it works as a visual cinematic moment. And then we get back to Jeremy Irons, who's basically, this is where we start getting the whole Apple stuff. And we, we see that he, you know, is the father of Sophia. He's sort of patronizing her, letting her believe that her experiment is about eradicating violence in mankind. But really, he is wanting to find a artifact that will make people bow to him. Like, that becomes pretty clear when he meets with Charlotte Rampling. She's the elder Ellen Kay, and they're talking about a, a meeting in London in which he's got to produce results for all the billions they've given him. Yeah, and Arnie, you already brought it up with Dan Brown and the Knights Templar, but this is where it really starts feeling like a Dan Brown type of plot, because you have the father who has ties to a secret society, and... His daughter is working with him. I mean, these are all very much Dan Brown tropes. And the only thing missing is Robert Langdon. Instead, we have Cal, an assassin. Yeah. We do need a hero and we don't get one. And I think I feel that. But I kind of get off on these scenes when we have these British actors I like. When Charlotte Rampling and Jeremy Irons are talking about, oh, we actually are controlling people these days. We got consumerism. We got politicians. We got all of that. People don't mind being led anymore. We don't need to invest in scientifically taking away their free will. Again, I'm wondering how this apple is going to work. Yes. I'm wondering how, again, I'm trying to get an apple out of my <laughs> mind because I'm imagining a piece of fruit being dangled around and people getting hypnotized. But I also recognize that Apple is a tech company and it's true that technology has seized the popular imagination. So the metaphor kind of works and I'm kind of digging these moments. It's okay. I think it's hurting that I know where everything's going to land by the time it's said and done. You know, I know that the Templars are trying to usurp and the assassins are good. A little bit more ambiguity around them, which I think this movie tries to create, might have helped the experience a bit. Yeah, it is the other, I'll call them prisoners, but it's the other test subjects who are whispering to Cal at the lunchroom, don't get the apple, don't go into the animus, don't play into their plots. But I think we're supposed to trust Marion Cotillard because she's cute, right? And like, she seems to be compassionate, maybe. I think that we're supposed to think that she believes she's doing good, even though she's working for people that want to do bad. 
at this point, I'm not sure what the conflict between Maria and her father is. Like, do they not want the same thing? Aren't they both looking to cure violence? Or is it that her father wants the cure for violence to give to the Templars, who would then use it as population control? Yes. And in the end, she wants to do it for humanitarian reasons. Wouldn't it be great to live in a utopia? And he's like, no, I want to live in a totalitarian state where I'm the ruler. Like, that's the subtle difference that seems to be going on there, that these Knights Templar always hope to use technology. To, I kept hearing bow and, you know, subservience and ending dissidence. So the idea of taking away free will means that people are shackled to them. But I don't quite know what to make of the other prisoners there. I mean, I get that each of them is also going into the Animus. I just presume that. I don't think we ever see it, do we? I think they've already go done their time. We don't see it. You're right. We don't know what they've had. But my guess is they've already been processed and they've done all that they're going to. And a lot of them have resisted and there's like a nursing home wing where they have all these old people that like aren't doing well. Because what we're told is if you try to resist regression while you're going into the animus, you could lose your mind. You might not die, but like at one point Cal has a seizure and foams at the mouth and he could end up like one of these barely there memory wiped people like his father like he will eventually find out that the dad that murdered his mom is in that nursing home staring out the window and he's even being baited to kill him as a way of getting excited about violence and going in the animus I think that is you helping out the movie but I also think that you're you're on to something there Stuart and I guess as the movie's progressing I'm having these questions and assume that they will be made clear later, but a lot of them aren't. Yeah. I could have used some dialogue there from one of these other guys that, like, laid it out for you. It's like, hey, don't go in the Animus, but if you do, go along with it. Otherwise, you'll lose your mind, you know? But that doesn't seem clear while watching this. I think because Sophia is so willing to, like, hold him back. She keeps telling her father, we don't want to put him in the Animus because I want to treat him well. I want him to be psychologically prepared that's the way it looks. He's having these tracer effects. Like, he's seeing Aguilar come and attack him in his room. She's like, we need for that to wear off before you go back into the machine again. We basically need your compliance. If we force you to do this, your mind's going to resist and you may end up catatonic. You may end up like your dad and that might be unhelpful. But you're right. There are a bunch of other people and they're all whispering in the lunchroom, we're not playing ball. And they will eventually stage a coup to get away. I don't think they're even wanted by the Knights and Jeremy Iron because they don't know where the apple is. Only Aguilar slash Cal knows where that object is. So they keep all these others around just to run up bills and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, admittedly, I, I feel like, yeah, why do you keep buying them lunch? <laughs> why wouldn't you execute them? I I mean, I'm not going to jump to execute. I feel like watching a movie, I'd be very callous and be like, well, why don't you just kill them? But let's say you're not just a homicidal maniac who wants to kill everyone when you're done with them. Couldn't you at least just like put them out on the streets? What's the worst they're going right. to say? Oh, they made me have memories? Yeah, Sophia even says, we're going to get your freedom back. You're going to be a better person.
person having gone through that. That's her sales pitch to Cal is that we've given you a new lease on life. The old you is dead. The new you needs to participate. And once we're done, you'll be cured. And yeah, the fact that there are other people there in what looks like correctional uniforms and guards are watching them and shooting them full of trank darts and all of that would make you not believe her. (laughs) I agree that it's a mixed message that she wants to say, I'm rehabilitating when it looks like incarceration. I think they're just trying to keep all these assassins from slipping away and killing people because they know their deadly potential and they haven't been cured. And when we go back into the Animus again, we see one that doesn't have a modern day equivalent. Aguilar is teaming up with Maria. I'm wondering if this was the character that got cut. I had a hard time figuring out from the cut scenes out of order if she was supposed to be the wife resurrected, but there's definitely supposed to be a father-son relationship there. Like, he's supposed to have feeling in the past and have feeling in the present and see human connection matters. Yeah, I think she was going to end up being his sidekick at the end of all of this, his reason for fighting. Well, anyway, we see what's a pretty exciting escape from Tokamata where they're drawn up on the stake. They're about to be lit and suddenly Fastbender is breaking the chains and doing backflips and parkour and... Again, whenever the movie's doing this, I feel like it's working pretty well. But is this the greatest stunt stuff? I mean, like, the parkour and stuff, it's not Casino Royale good. I mean, it's fine, but I can't say I'm super engaged. I can definitely say I'm not engaged, but I can say that it's not because the stunt work is not good. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's fine. You know, I'm not being blown away by the amount of stunt work here, but... It's definitely more engaging than the stuff in the real world, obviously. You know, we're in a place that has stakes. I mean, they're about to be lit on fire, and they're chained to pillars. It all happened so fast that I had to kind of sit back and realize, okay, only two of them actually escaped. They did get the other assassins here. And innocent people. I mean, again, Jews and Muslims that were pretending to be Catholic. That's what the Inquisition was out to purge. Maybe they're afraid of of having too much religiosity in this. Maybe they're afraid that that would offend potential goers. And so part of why we don't understand what's going on is that they're afraid of this moment in history, which seems like the wrong impulse. If you don't want to teach a history lesson, don't go to 1492. You know, like that's a mistake. Yeah, it almost feels like notes. Like maybe they did want to go more realistic and actually give more of a history lesson like you're saying but then we're talked out of it by the studio yeah it feels like the director is all about give me the grungy past the dirt the filth again watches Macbeth, and it's all about that and the studio is like eh, could we do some more action can we have a little bit more lightness can we have fastbender do a few more of those cool jumps The result is a movie that i feel is really muddied in that regard though i'm not quite sure what the stakes are in the past. I'm not quite sure sometimes what the missions are in the past. I know that we have this MacGuffin of the apple, but I'm not quite sure in the past exactly how the specific thing going on with them almost being burned ties into the capture of the apple. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that. So the apple is being held by a sultan, and the sultan's son has been taken prisoner. So the knights are basically dangling a child and saying, if you want your son back, 
give us the apple. These assassins are going to make sure that that sultan doesn't do that. They fear that he is going to cave to protect his family. They're all about like, we don't like people. We we don't like truth. I don't know what they subscribe to, but they're, <laughs> they're very committed to the idea of free will at the expense of every single individual in person. All children will be sacrificed. Fingers will be chopped. And so we finally get to the third animus is all about them basically interceding in the switch off where child is being exchanged for Apple. And in this third one, we're going to get the wonderful leap of faith, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We will see Aguilar gets that apple and gets away, but Maria dies. Emperor Manbun does like knife her in the neck, just like his dad knifed his mother in the neck. And that's the part I really don't understand. They are trying to make an equivalency between this abuse of this woman that Cal loved in the past or Aguilar loved in the past and his mother. I don't know what to make of Brendan Gleeson, Mad-Eye Mooney, why he did what he did and what it all means to the story. That part totally gets lost. I'm left cold by it. What I wish that we had seen better in this cutscene is, you know, there's this Mexican standoff where Man Bun has his knife to the female assassin and Aguilar has his knife to Tokimata. And in order to stop the stalemate, the woman, I think, shoves her own neck onto the blade. But the way it's filmed and cut and maybe because of that pg-13 rating it's really hard to tell that she did that to herself she basically to go to speed the movie terminology she shot the hostage she killed herself so that aguilar would have no reason to give up the win and then when we go and see 1986 what we were shown in the initial flashback is Cal, as a teenager, walked in and saw his mother dead and his father there and the father with the weapon. So you think the father killed the mother. In the flashback, when Cal is reunited with his father, is that the mother, and this is clear, took his hand and shoved the blade into her own neck. And this was, again, they knew they were going to be captured by the Templars. She'd rather die than have them dig in her memories, her genetic memories, and find the apple. That reads to me that they're protecting the creed, you know? They're sworn to protect the secrecy of their creed, which is to protect whatever secrets this apple can unleash on the world. That's fine. That makes sense to me. What I'm still at this point in the movie not understanding is, is Cal in the Animus able to change the outcome of these events that he's now living in? Or is he just a bystander who has to react them out? Like, could he have changed? We're told he's a bystander. Yeah. They have to have him act it out in order for the machine to work. They can't just process it like videotape. They need for him to jump around. But yes, he is jumping around the way that Aguilar jumped around. And because Aguilar did what he did, Cal is trapped in that mold. He would not be able to say, Aguilar, let's go down this path and not that one. Don't jump off this bridge, climb up this wall. He can't do that. He can only act out Aguilar. And that leads them to where they've been wondering. You know, he grabbed the apple. He jumped off the bridge. Leap of faith. Where does he wash up? They don't say the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, but it is Christopher Columbus taking that to the new world. Which we talked about this with Uncharted a little bit, where it's like, okay, it's Christopher Columbus. Nobody in the last 500 years has examined all the things that are with Christopher Columbus in his burial place. 
Like it's just it's all it's oh we're sitting in a box in a church down the street. Damn it! Why did we spend billions of dollars on this animus thing and keeping people prisoners? I know it really. Yeah, it's kind of a dunderheaded move. What else happened in 1492? <laughs> hmm, who might be involved? It is kind of funny, but I think that's the appeal of these kinds of things. National Treasure and, and Da Vinci Code is the idea that you can go to tourist sites and that there's something Illuminati about it that, like, nobody notices, but it's staring at you in plain view. I think that's the fun, is that, yes, Columbus says, I'll take it to my grave, and literally the apple has been sitting in his grave ever since. I thought for sure, like, the apple was lost, like he threw it in the ocean and he was metaphorically taking it to his grave. No, he was buried with it. Yeah. And it makes it very easy then for Jeremy Irons to go and grab it. It's in the box, everything. It's all right there. And so, yes, as the bad guys are getting what they want, the good guys, the assassins, are breaking out of the system. And we see a few of them lose their lives so that others can slip out in another big action scene. Arnie, I'm wondering, you play the game, how close is this replicating gameplay? And, I mean, are you enjoying any of it? The stuff in the past replicated the gameplay much better with the parkour and with some of the use of the hand blades and things. And there's not as much hiding as there was in the game. At no point do you sit on a bench with an old lady to let police pass you by. There's no, I'm going to just walk with this cadre of monks so that people think I'm a monk based on how I'm dressed that you do in the game. But... There's definitely the hallmarks of the game there with Fassbender jumping on ledges and things. Here, at this very end, it just felt like a generic action movie to me, though. I did like the one guy who kept doing the magic tricks, and he ended up making some smoke grenades appear out of his sleeve. That was kind of fun. Musa, yeah. I love Michael K. Williams, always. But... I'm not enjoying this. I've kind of got this let's get on with it kind of mentality. What about you, Justin? Is the action enough to clear out the confusion? My assessment of this movie when we get there is all going to be hindsight. Like, while it's all happening, I feel like there's questions being thrown at us, and I'm waiting for some satisfying answers. But what we keep getting is exposition, action, exposition, action. And after a while, it feels a little bit whiplashy, and I feel like I'm just on the sideline waiting for this train to come to an end. So by the time we're at this modern day version of them breaking out and we see these assassins, I'm so confused by why any of this is happening that I can't feel pulled into the fact that it is happening. Okay. See, and I'm feeling like, oh, okay, now the movie's finally started. They set up everything and now the good guys are busted out and we need to have this fight for this apple and well, I'm shocked like this is the movie's just going to end <laughs> with this very quick wrap up in London. Yeah, the Templars have all come together to celebrate their victory and hold up the apple and yeah, that was the big thing. All right, there's a device that controls free will. What are the mechanics of that? How is that going to work? <laughs> it just looks like Jeremy Irons is, is like holding up like a smoking green apple. What is this? Like this, like his parlor tricks. Like this does not look like it will have global impact on mankind and we'll all be enslaved. Yeah, it's just another big question that the movie refuses to answer. It's like, oh, okay, if this whole movie has been about the MacGuffin of the apple and they finally have the apple... Tell us how this is going to work. Oh, it's just going to make some green mist, and I guess if you stop it in time, it doesn't matter? <laughs> I don't know. This whole thing gets really confusing. Yeah. 
Was it going to infect other Apple products? Like, I, <laughs> I, I really did want to know. Like, I mean, that was like, because I'm like, it's silly to ask people to care this much about apples. It really is. Not since Johnny Appleseed has anyone paid this much attention to where an apple is. And I just felt like this was an important moment that got dropped. Up to this point, the movie's been fitful, but I've more or less been on its side. And then I just feel blue balled that like, nope, it's over. Jeremy Irons' throat is slit. And now Sophia, who knew Aguilar was there, or Cal, well, whatever you want to call them, knew the assassins were breaking in, was fine with it, seemingly, because she had felt betrayed. Now is like, I'm going to get them, and I'm going to get that apple back, too. Well, and this whole movie has been grounded in science fiction and somewhat reality. We haven't yet dealt with anything spiritual or supernatural, and I thought well, this is where it's all going to come together. It's like, oh, it is the supernatural versus the scientific, and nope, just it's nothing. It's supposed to be our Raiders of the Lost Ark ending, right? This is supposed right. to be the moment you open the ark, and you open the ark and find out there's just a little green mist inside, and <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Yes, if I felt like something badass was just about to happen, that was biblical. Like some, like they're about to get smited. Like okay. That could be something, but it just, it feels kind of pathetic that Jeremy Irons is holding up a green misting apple and then someone just slits his throat and turns off the lights and it's over. Like that's, <laughs> everybody go home, there'll be a sequel and we'll all get to explaining what happened in that. This final scene really does sum up the movie because it's, it's a whole lot of stuff going on that really accumulates to nothing. Like, I mean, we see all these... Like little tiny handoffs going on between the the assassins in this crowd as they're being seated, and it's like, what's what's going on here? And all I can assume is they're giving him the parts to assemble his blade. Is that is that what's going on? Yeah, yeah. They at some like a sword swallower even like chokes like spits. I think you'd still know in a metal detector you had metal in you. <laughs> right. Like just they'd feel it in your stomach. But anyway, it was cool that they swallowed their swords. I thought that was pretty badass. They, they did make a point to show that he had a metal belt buckle, and that's what wanted to set it off. But yeah, they, they didn't really make it clear. We didn't get to see him assembling that all together into one thing, did we? They didn't make it clear that that's what was happening, which, you know, fine. Sometimes it's subtle and cool, but like that's, to me, at the end of the day, is the problem with this whole movie is it's much too subtle for things that they think are going to be a big payoff that just do not pay off. Well, I think you just summed up the movie for me, but let's do that. <laughs> Justin Stewart, do you recommend Assassin's Creed? Justin. I think it's not going to be too big of a surprise that I'm frustrated by this movie. Because as we talked about before, it has all the potential to be one of the best ones in the arcade. I mean, it's got a great cast. It looks pretty good. I mean, we've talked about how it's dark in places. But it's a design choice. Like, I think they do a good job of delineating between when we are in the past, when it's warm, earthy tones, and when we're in the future and it's cold and gray. You're never lost as to where we are, at least in this movie. If we're in the past, you know it visually. If we're in the present, you can see it. But damn if they don't drop the ball. I mean, this movie asks so many questions that I feel like the answer to it from the filmmakers is, eh, it doesn't matter. And if that's the answer to these questions then that's going to be my answer to the question of, do I recommend this? It's like, eh, it doesn't matter. If you see this movie, it's not going to stick with you. It's going to be something that you walk away from and have questions about. And for me, at this point, I don't care to have them answered. If they're going to do a sequel, you lost me with the first one, so I'm not going to get excited. And at this point, it doesn't look like we're going to get a sequel. It's been long enough. But yeah, at the end of the day, I can't recommend this. And it didn't do anything to make me want to play the game, which is a shame because it looks like it could be a fun game. Stuart, 
You know, no answer feels correct on this. Like, do I want to praise the ambition or, you know, damn the lack of entertainment value? Like, I feel like both points are valid here. It's a really mixed bag. On the positive side, I'm really impressed they tried to make a real movie and not just, like, bring a game to life and pantomime video game action. They really were trying to get at something about the human condition, the primal roots of aggression, and man's impulse for violence. They have an actor that can do that. Fassbender's really good in this. He's committed in this. We just don't get to know who Cal is. We don't know the pimp he killed. We don't know what losing his mom meant for him. And because we don't have that psychology, all of the social experiment about whether he can be cured of violence lands kind of hollow. Like, the movie's too pretentious to be dismissed as pure popcorn fun. And yet, it's not bad in the way that Uwe Boll makes video game movies. So I don't, I don't want to give it an arrow. <laughs> I want the rest of the movie that should have, like, brought all of this to a close. Like, it's really a, a kicker that they stopped where they did and didn't try to finish what they started with that Apple stuff. I, it's kind of like a cool Ridley Scott medley that is in search of a point. And it's got great ambition, but you know what? I'm going to say, given that I grade on curves, this is one of the best video game movies. I'm going to give it a mild recommend for those ambitions, fully recognizing everything you guys have said about how it's dark, undershot, and so much too much of this is done in shadow. We needed more answers. I see no good reason for this movie to exist. If you're interested in its story and the animus and the time travel... All of it is told better by watching a long play walkthrough on YouTube. You'd just be better off if you don't feel like playing a game, you don't think you're good at them, or you don't have time or whatever, you want something on in the background while you work, just put on somebody else playing the game and you are going to get a much better storytelling experience than you will out of this movie. It comes down to the basic question of why turn video games into movies in the first place beyond the obvious cash grab. I mean, you want to make more money off of your games, okay, I understand that, but what can you add to the experience? Everything in this movie is lesser than in the games. The visuals are lesser, even though you're seeing very realistic, highly detailed CG versus PlayStation 3 level graphics. It doesn't matter, because... You can barely see the stuff here. There's so much brown. There's so many scenes with dirt or haze or fog or smoke going on. It's underlit. So where does that leave you? It leaves you with Fassbender giving a very intense performance. And Fassbender is somebody who I generally like as an actor. But I can't tell exactly what he's fighting against. I'm left just frustrated by this movie, and yet it's seeping out of my ears like earwax after a shower. I'm already forgetting this movie, and I just saw it yesterday. It's completely forgettable. It wasn't worth my time. I was really, really happy that the credits started early, because it meant I got to stop the films quicker than I'd expected. To me, this is better than Uva Bull's stuff, and so if you're grading on a curve, this is past the midpoint on the curve, but it's still a not recommend. I mean, by being one of the best of a very bad batch, 
does not give you the right to say you passed the class. This is a, a red arrow of a movie that I'm very fortunate. You know, I picked up the 3D Blu-ray because that was the only way for me to experience it in the 3D that was envisioned when it was created. It was shot with that in mind, even if not shot in 3D. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, yeah, I'm never going to watch this again. I'm never in my life going to have the impetus to put this Blu-ray back in the player. So I might as well toss the disc. I mean, seriously, there's nothing here worth seeing. And so to me, that makes it a not recommend. I mean, it's better than Prince of Persia, and there were cool things in this. I think you're casting everything out with the bathwater, like Baby and Animus, and that was all really cool. I really dug all of that. So I guess that's the difference, is that you didn't like anything about this, and I thought they had something that they let slip away. But I didn't hate anything about it. Like, the first half hour of this movie, I did a check-in with myself as I started to recalibrate the projector for the first time. And I go, you know, I'm not disliking this movie. It's, uh, I am completely ambivalent to this movie so far. And the more it went, the more confusing it got until it got to that climax where I'm just like, yeah, I don't understand why Sophia's mad. I don't really understand why that guy ended up getting these ancient-looking smoke bombs while... In, I mean, I understand you get the skills of the person while you're in the Animus, but you don't get the tools of the people while you're in the Animus. Yeah. So it just became a point of a big shrug to me. And this movie isn't toxic. It's forgettable. Yeah, I don't disagree. You know what it really needed was it needed Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> like, they're going to fix all of this next week, because guess what, guys? We're not done with video game movies. You know his name ends in an N, right? It's Dolph Lundgren. I thought it was Lundgren. You said his name ends in an N. You said Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I, you know what? We get Dolphed next week. And that is, I don't know, maybe he made the best Punisher movie. It's hard to say. Like, in general, I think of him as a very bad thing to add to any equation, including a video game movie retrospective. Thomas Jane holds best Punisher movie. Oh, that movie was the worst. That one was the worst. That was terrible. Come on, it was The Good, The Bad, and The Punisher. It was, just... it was horrendous, that movie. A Fistful of Bullets. Mm -hmm. No, no, Dolph beat that, the shit. But we've already done Dolph in The Name of the King, so now we're back to Dolph? Yes. Apparently, they made a, a game for cell phones in 2011 called Dead Trigger, and someone said, perfect for Dolph. <laughs> and so we got to cover it. Hey, it's not our first mobile game, Angry Birds. Jason Sudeikis' Darkest Hour. Did anybody recommend Angry Birds? I can't <laughs> even remember now. Uh, maybe in a moment of weakness. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you want more Brendan Gleeson, he is in <laughs> Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. A little bit. There's a lot of people in that movie. If you're not Harry Potter, you're not getting a whole lot of screen time. But you could hear us discuss him. He's been in... A couple of the Harry Potter films so far as Mad-Eye Moody, and we are coming to a close on the Harry Potter part of the Wizarding World retrospective series. You can get in now and hear our reviews of the first six films, the seventh on Friday, and then the final one next Friday. It's your support that keeps this show going, and we say thank you for your support with these bonus podcasts. You can find the details on our website. And if you're a patron of $10 or more, you get that bonus show every month. This weekend on Oscar Sunday, we have an Oscar-winning bonus review for our patrons. 
and that is Parasite, picked by one of our patrons. Doesn't have Dolph in it. Sad. Maybe they can remake it. But yeah, a pretty excellent Best Picture winner. It's time for the Best Picture Oscar announcements of 2022. So that is for our monthly patrons of $10 or more on Patreon or on Podbean. Again, all the details are on our website, and if you become a $10 or more monthly patron, you're going to get access to the full backlog of patron reviews, including Hook, Enter the Dragon, Real Genius, Akira, just a huge, widely varied list of movies. So you can find all of those movies listed at our website as well. So... Justin Stewart, thanks for entering the animus with me. I hold no animosity to either of you for making me watch this. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did. It's time to (laughs) desynchronize. Until next time, game over. listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. This is their final star. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. You started this. You don't get to walk away. We both know what happens next. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other video game movies, including Resident Evil, The Wizard, Street Fighter, Double Dragon, Tomb Raider, Rampage, and more. I'll give you a Nobel Peace Prize for this. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. Your recent work has impressed us much. Do you want to continue? Insert money now to keep playing, now playing. You'll learn more if you cooperate. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. What's in it for me? You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. In your hands now, You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks. Find the details on our website. I'm here to help you, and you're here to help me. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. But it is not to ourselves but to the future that we must give glory. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. 
Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Following the light of the sun, I shall leave this old world behind. Now Playing Podcast is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. This is my life's work. Associate produced by Jason Latham. The man grows with the greatness of his task. Now Playing Credits, read by Brock. I'm accountable for this. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. You lied to me. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the film or game discussed in this podcast. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or game. The film and all music and clips used are the property of the original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now I am become dead. The destroyer of worlds. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Following the light of the sun, I shall leave this old world behind. Fastbender was working on Macbeth. Oh, Macbeth. It's okay. That makes more sense. For some reason, I was picturing Fastbender as playing Hamlet, and I thought that would actually be pretty interesting. But he Macbeth- might have done that at some point, but it was Macbeth. Okay. You know. <laughs>